Hello everyone and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and with me here in the studio is my friend and colleague, Niklas Savos. How are you? I'm great. It's really fascinating for me to speak with one of my early idols in the business. In today's episode of Investing by the Books, we are eager to speak with Vitaly Katzenelson. After joining the Denver-based value investment firm IMA in 1997, he became CIO in 2007 and CEO in 2012. Vitalia is also an author of several books, such as Active Value Investing, the little book about sideways markets, and the book that we are going to speak about today, Soul in the Game, The Art of a Meaningful Life. What is uh, this book about? I had read the, the little book about sideways markets before, and it's purely an investing book, I would say. And, and this book, The Soul in the Game, is sort of an autobiography where Vitali goes deep on his personal life and shares lessons about, for example, parenting and, and life hacks. He makes a lot of references to his passion, classical music, but also to art and stoicism. While this is not a typical investing book, I think there are several interesting connections which can help us to get better as both investors and people. Soul in the Game was released by Harriman House in June 2022, and we are grateful to have its author on the show today. Here comes our conversation with Vitaly Katzenelson. Hello Vitaly and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Guys, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. It's great to have you on. And where are you today? I am where I live in Denver, Colorado. Uh, it's, a, it's snowing here, but I'm sure it's going to be sunlight tomorrow. So that's what Denver is usually. Early morning. Yes. An afternoon here in Stockholm. And uh, to begin for our listeners, can you tell them a bit about your background and what led you into the world of investing? Sure. Um, so today I live in Denver. I am a CEO of a value investment firm called IMA. I'm a diehard value investor. I wrote uh, uh, several books, uh, two on investing. Um, uh, and my latest book is the, uh, which has nothing to do with investing. I'm sure we'll talk about it, is the, uh, called the Soul in a Game. But as you can tell from my accent, I was not born in the United States. I was born actually in Murmansk, Russia. Um, and I immig- my family immigrated to the United States in 1991. And uh, I, you know, I, if I had to describe myself kind of in, in a short sentence, it would be, I, you know, I write, you know, I, I spent a lot of time writing about life, investing in classical music. You know, and my day job is, uh, you know, kind of being a diehard value investor. So, yes. And what was your first job in investing and how has this uh, impacted you? My first job was actually, you know, I, I got introduced to investing when I was in college and I got a job working for a small investment firm. And they hired me not because of my investment skills. I had none. They hired me because I had very good computer skills. And that's how I got introduced to investing. And that was in 1994, 1995, somewhere around that time. And then in 1997, I was hired by IMA. They, and I've been with IMA since. So I've been with IMA for almost 26 years now. And today I'm a you know, company CEO. And uh, we understand that you are a fan of uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb's writing. And uh, that's something we are as well. And he has written a book with a similar title as yours called Skin in the Game. Please talk about the connection between Soul in the Game and Skin in the Game. Yeah, uh, well, I'm a huge fan of Nassim Taleb. And in fact, when I turned 30, which was 19 years ago, 
I was given a gift. Uh, a friend gave me a food by randomness. Nassim's second book, but it's a, you know, the, his first book was, was about trading options. But so that was really his first kind of philosophical book about stock market and investing in randomness. And that book had a huge impact on me. And since then, I was a, you know, I wrote, I read everything he wrote, unless, you know, unless it had a mathematical formulas, which he loves to do. I didn't read those books. But anything philosophy related, et cetera, um, I wrote, you know, I, I read. When I read his book, Skin in the Game, there was one chapter that had a huge impact on me. And the chapter was called Soul in the Game. And it had a, such a great impact on me. I wrote this long essay about it. So when I was looking for a title for my book, felt so naturally for that chapter to, you know, for the, you know, for the title of the chapter to become the title of the book. So I called the book Soul in a Game. Yeah. And how has the feedback been from uh, Nassim Taleb? Oh, he loved it. Uh, he he even endorsed the book. So that's, you know, I guess <laughs> that's a high praise. Uh, yeah. And I mean, you you exemplify having this soul in the game with uh, the documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Can you talk about the connection and and so? So, in the, in Japan, in Tokyo, the, the, there's a sushi restaurant that looks like a hole in the wall, like a in the a, like a, literally in the subway station. And if you walk into this restaurant, there's absolutely nothing remarkable about it, except one thing. It's the all. It's well at the time. It was the first uh, three-star Michelin restaurant, that you know, sushi restaurant in the world. And it's run by this guy uh, Jiro, who at the time of the commentary was I don't know 90 years old. And uh, this guy has been making sushi for more than 70 years, and his single goal was to perfect sushi. He like he was like he he turned sushi into art, and. Uh, And uh, what I loved about the documentary, how if you like study Jiro's carefully, you can see he embodies both skin in the game and soul in the game. Skin in the game because he actually eats the food he makes, which is automatically puts him into skin in the game. Um, but from a soul in the game perspective, this is a person for whom financial benefits are secondary. His focus on is to make the best sushi he can make. And you can see this, you know, because he has a restaurant. Like this is a restaurant where you have to make a reservation five months ahead. In fact, that restaurant lost its three-star Michelin rating because it was impossible to make a reservation into the restaurant for the restaurant. You know, so uh, but he only has ten seats in the restaurant. Ten seats. If he wanted to, he could make it a huge. He could make it a franchise, etc. But then he. You know, but that, but the thing is, for him, financial benefits are secondary. So he just wants to make the best sushi he can make, and for him to do that, the restaurant needs to have ten seats. I mean, we can keep going, but that's that's going to be you know, high level idea. And as investors, I mean, finding managers with this type of dedication, it's very rare. And do you think a manager can have too much soul in the game? Um, okay, I'm going to answer this question from two perspectives. From a person who invests into the fund, I think the money manager cannot have too much soul in the game. I could also say that from investor's personal perspective, he can have too much soul in the game. And let me explain what I mean. The 
you, uh, which is like uh, I'm going to approach it from a very different perspective. And I arrived to this after I wrote the book. So this is a new thinking on my part. Um, if you have too much soul in a game, then sometimes what may happen is that other parts of your life suffer. And you can see this if you look at Warren Buffett. I mean, he's up, you know, the guy is, you know, is completely obsessed about investing. And he paid a dear price for it. More or less neglected his kids when they were young. He's, you know, he loved his wife and they had a wonderful marriage. But, you know, he, you know, kind of, he neglected her and, you know, and they basically, that marriage fell apart. So as an investor, you, like as an investor, you have to be careful of not having too much soul in a game where it's basically ruins other parts of your life. So like if, if let's say for Jira, like let's say for Jira, like let's, let's go talk to Jira, right? Let's say if Jira spends 15 hours a day working, okay, and obsessing about the sushi, I'm, it's great for Jira's customers. It's not necessarily great for Jira's family. So you need to find some kind of balance. And I, when I use the word balance, it assumes uh, that you're going to spend seven hours working, seven hours at home. I, I don't think that's what it means to me. I think it means um, finding the right balance, I guess, where you spend enough time with your kids. And when you spend time enough time, when I say enough time, quality time. And at the same time, you, so they feel that you're present when you're with them. But at the same time, you are still committed to your craft. And as an investor and at IMA, do you actually talk to managers and ask these type of questions? Or, or how do you determine if they have soul in the game and, and a right balance? I formed an opinion by, like, by, you know, by just listening to the conference calls, by you know, you know, reading, listen, reading and listening to interviews people who work for those companies, uh, by also by by the actions. I mean, the like the, remember this the foundation of soul in the game is having skin in the game. So when you have a CEO uh, who owns a lot of stock, that's you know that's that's you know that's that's a he already has skin in the game. So the next elevation, you know, soul in the game is uh, like um I have, I'll, I'll give an example. Um, we own a company which I'm not going to mention the name for for reason you'll see. Which is run by CEO, who is completely completely obsessed with the company. And unfortunately, this this guy lost his family in a car accident. You know, and so that company that's all he's got. So I know this guy is thinking about running this business. You know, fifteen hours a day. I I mean this is. I mean I. It's a tragic story, obviously, but like you know, if you can if, if you can glean into person's life a little bit, you can see how much you know. If I if um so uh so it's what you find about investing, it's like it's a you never have a perfect answer. You always have hints of an answer for an answer. So that's that's how I look at it. And at Red Eye, I mean, I work as an equity analyst here at Red Eye, and. Uh, we we have a, our own framework on uh, I mean how we rate uh, companies and and the managers and and owners and so on, and one of the questions we have on the people side of it is actually if um, 
if uh, the CEO is going through, I mean, some personal issues such as a divorce or something, and uh, then they actually get a reduced points in our rating. I mean, is that something? I mean, how would you uh, how would you think about having such? I mean, I, I know how that impacts equity managers, so I can look, you know, and the names you and I both in your. I'm not going to mention them here, but you know those names. Um, so, uh, so I get that. Uh, so I guess it makes sense. I, I mean, I I guess it, from that perspective, it makes sense. But at the same time, if CEO is going through divorce, would it make me sell the stock? Not necessarily. And in the book, you write that the Stoic philosophy has had a life-changing impact on you. And maybe not all of our listeners are super familiar with the concept. So maybe you can describe your definition of Stoicism and how you think about it. Okay, so let's break up Stoic philosophy number into two different definitions. Philosophy sounds like a very intimidating word. All it is, it's love of wisdom. That's all it is. Um, Stoic philosophy started about 2,000 years ago in ancient Greece and Rome. And uh, and the three individuals that basically who were kind of the founding fathers, you would argue, of this uh, philosophy, whose writings you know, survived you know, to this day, are Epictetus, uh, who was a slave, uh, Seneca, who was kind of the Renaissance man, but I don't know, 15th centuries before Renaissance. He was a banker, a playwright, uh, advisor to an emperor, you know, uh, a writer. And then uh, there was Marcus Aurelius, who was an emperor of Rome. Um, and uh, what's really amazing about uh, Stoic philosophy um, if you read those writings and you sanitize them a little bit from a kind of uh, from a, uh, from references to that time period, they could have been written today. Like uh, Seneca, like I'll give an example. In one of his writings about time, Seneca uh, complains how people are wasting their time on uh, stupid activities. And uh, and, uh, and you think he's talking about TikTok, Facebook, and yeah, Instagram. <laughs> and, he, and he wrote it 2,000 years ago. And so what's really amazing about that is that um, even though it's 2,000 years old, people really have not changed. We have different destructions, you know, different things that are, but our hum, you know, human condition has not really changed very much. What really attracted me to Stoic philosophy is that it helps you to minimize unnecessary suffering in your life, okay? And by doing that, you improve the quality of your life. That's kind of on a high level, what, that's what attracted me to philosophy. Interesting, and can you describe an example where that has helped you as an investor? Sure. In fact, I, I, it would, I would not be presumptuous to assume that most listeners are money, you know, investors, right, who are listening to this. So I'm going to describe a concept that applies to investing perfectly, which is, I'm sure to 90% of people who listen to it, it's a kind of innate concept. So you you know about this. But uh, so um, uh, Epictetus said, uh, some things are up to us, others aren't. Okay. And things that are up to you are 
you know, your behavior, you know, your, beha- your basically your behavior, your thinking, those kind of things, your values. Everything else is not up to you. You're driving to work and stuck in traffic, not up to you. Uh, your spouse is not having a good day and not nice to you, not up to you. Uh, oh, the stock market decides to have a be down 5%, not up to you. Now, what's up to you is how you react to this. The second you realize that those things are not up to you, you have no control over them, you, ch- you should change your behavior. You should focus on how you react to that. Okay, so from investment perspective, what is up to us as investors? It's basically our investment process, our decision making, but how the market prices our stocks on a daily basis, not up to us. The risks that show up out of nowhere, not up to us. What's up to us is how we react to them. So as an, so an investor, this is why you have to be processed, you know, you should be focusing on your on the process, not on the daily outcome of your decisions. And if you have a good process, if you make unemotional, rational decisions, in the long run, you should do well. In the short run, you know, it's it's completely random. So this is just one example. And how do you deal with that when you, I mean, when you start to maybe fret too much about bad outcomes? I mean. Do you have any any examples about going through tough times when you actually, I mean, use this to your to your benefit? Well, there are a couple of ways you can do this. Number one, you can do what's called negative visualization. So you can basically, you know, make an assumption that at some point your portfolio is going to be down twenty or thirty percent, and and at some point it will be, okay. And when that happens, it's almost like you've been vaccinated against it. You know, okay, uh, uh, because uh, you can uh, also choose of how you look at that. Okay, and this is very important, how you frame it. By the way, so far, like everything I told you comes from Stoic philosophy. Okay, but the, so framing it as a Stoic concept, uh, you can look at it as basically say, well, my stocks are down 30%, okay? Or you can look at it and say, at this point in time, the market thinks the, the, the market has an opinion on my companies, you know, and uh, a lot of these opinions are wrong. Okay, and through my research, here's what I think these companies work. Now, the another uh, another thing Stoics bring to the table is, uh, I, I, let me tell the story. In the ancient Rome, there was this. Um, there was a lot of um, philosoph- uh, schools of philosophy, in, you know, and there was one school called sophists. You know, the word sophisticated has a root of sophists, and sophists were, were in. If you when you took your kids to a school of sophistry, you the kids were taught how to argue, how to make eloquent points, but they were not necessarily taught values. Okay, so. Stoics were not very big fans of sophists because a lot of times the problem is if your brain was disconnected, like if your words were disconnected from your brain, then it wouldn't matter. But a lot of times we actually talk ourselves into a certain type of thinking. If you say to yourself, my stocks are doing horribly, nothing is working in my life. If you start using these words, big words, you actually start thinking that. So you have to be very careful about the words you use 
because they actually have an impact on your thinking. However, let's take a step further. Uh, so Marcus Aurelius had this, you know, uh, had this idea. He said, when you go to a fancy restaurant, and I'm paraphrasing, so when you go there and there is a very sophisticated menu where it says it's a salmon with uh, salmon with honey glazed basil, and you keep going, like and add a whole bunch of French words to it, right? And suddenly they can triple the price for the salmon, right? And Marcus Aurelius would say, it's a dead fish with some herbs on top of it, right? Okay, so what he, <laughs> he, he just removed these extra layers, okay, and you take it down to the essence of what it is. So the point is this, when you look at the start, when you look at your portfolio, you should, you should try to uh, be careful, very, very careful the words you use to describe what's going on. And instead of looking kind of on overall, like, like my stocks are down this much, you look one stock at a time and say, what is the fair value of the company? Where is the stock trading? What are the cash flows of the business? What do you think it's going to earn? And, and by the way, I found this technique is incredibly useful at the time of uh, financial distress. Like I, I remember during 2008, 2009, uh, I would get a call from a panic client. So remember when the financial system was collapsing? And we would open his portfolio and we would say, okay, here's your, I don't know, United Healthcare. Okay. Well, this year, this generated this much cash flows. It seems like you're probably going to have a healthcare tomorrow, despite the financial crisis. This company is not going anywhere. Okay. So this is the earnings. This is what it's worth. And you go once, one stock at a time. And after, after I would download the business conversation, both my clients and I would feel better because it's a you you basically remove all this extra fluff and noise and focus on things you can control you can analyze yeah speaking about the fundamental parts and also speaking about the process that we we discussed the last essay of your book as well as the subtitle of it is uh, the art of a meaningful life and in this essay you write that once our art turns into a craft it's time to move on and uh, Niklas and I have been discussing this a lot in the podcast we usually talk about investing as both an art and a craft. So we're curious to hear what you think about this. It's an art and a craft. Well, I think the the way you would apply it to investing is that you want to maintain this balance between operating in your so-called competence, but always push the borders of your so-called competence. Uh, let me give you an example. And I, like it's like having this conversation with you guys is so terrific. Because I can just talk about investing and I kind of apply this concept. This is great. So imagine if you spend all your life analyzing just one industry, utility stocks. If you are a utility analyst and you listen to it, I'm very sorry about this. <laughs> for, for the fact that, okay, but just think about the miserable existence you're going to have, right? Because you already know everything there is to know, there's nothing to learn, right? Just kidding. I know this is an extreme example, but that's the whole point of it, right? Um, so therefore, as an, you know, you want to be kind of a student of life of investing, meaning you constantly want to be learning new things and, and you always going to have a certain amount of discomfort because you're going to be learning new things. Um, and that's how investing 
will because if you, if 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 nothing is only a craft if you if you are analyzing if you, all you do you just uh, analyze utility stocks your life is a complete craft there is absolutely zero art in it okay um and uh as you enjoy, as you expand your universe of knowledge uh it, you know as you know as you start looking at new industries etc then you introduce more art to it and therefore i think your life is going to be more interesting more meaningful because you'll be learning all the time i think it would be interesting to hear your view on because many people just throw out the words it's an art and a craft but what i mean the art piece of investing can you maybe define what that actually mean for you so i got to tell you a story like i told the story in the book but i think it's just the best way i can think of describing it difference between art and craft. So literally two weeks before the pandemic, my brother, Alex, my son, John, and I were in Venice. And we took a trip to uh, Murano factory, okay, where they, and we watched the guy make a horse out of a bulb of glass in literally about a minute and a half. And it was mesmerizing. And it's like incredible. And then my brother and I, like, like all three of us, we walk in the you know the streets of Murano, and we are debating: is that an art or craft, etc. And then we realize, and then we look at the we look at this thing, we, you know, stop by these little shops, and we see they have these horses by hundreds in every single shop, and we realized maybe there is a probably a craft. But then, and so that's that's kind of the, that's where the conversation ended. And as I was thinking more about this, I realized that we were looking from our own perspective. We should have really looked from perspective of this art, the, this guy who was making the horse. Imagine you're making this horse for the first time. You have this, um, you have these two conflicting feelings. On the one side, you're really excited about to see how it's going to look. Uh, so that's the trepidation and excitement of that. Uh, that's a positive emotion. Another side, you have this negative emotion, fear. Like, what if you're going to fail? And if you think about any creative activity, always going to have these two conflicting emotions. If if you don't have this trepidation, if you don't have this excitement about what you're doing, you're probably not going to move forward. Uh, if you have a zero fear of how it's going to look, that means uh, you're not taking any risks. You've done it so many times, the art is gone. Okay? So it's it's this healthy balance between the two. That's what creates art. But now, you are this guy who makes these horses. After you're done, after year three, and you, you just did 5,000 horses, you can sit down and you know exactly what you're going to do because now it's an automatic behavior, Right? And you know how this course how this course is gonna look like. The the at this point there is no art, only craft. Yeah, that's a great analogy, I think. And when I read your book, I mean it's it's clear that you state that you wanna focus on the art part uh, more in your I mean in in your professional life. And uh, how do you I mean can you define how you how you work at IMA? What's your role and and uh, what what is actually forming that art piece of, of your work? So, IMA is a relatively small firm. We manage about four hundred million dollars, 
So from that perspective, I get to do, you know, I have, I wear uh, basically three different hats. My main role is a, is a portfolio manager slash analyst. So I do both. Um, my second role is being a CEO, kind of managing the business. And my third role is uh, I write, I create content. And um, over the years, my goal was to keep my CEO role to a minimum, to create systems where I spend very little time on this. And I have very capable people who would just do that, you know, what they're supposed to do. And then I have to spend very little time on that. And then writing and, uh, and investing kind of intertwined. I am right now working on an essay about a financial system in the United States. And I'm on day six, probably on hour 15, I'm writing about this. Um, and I can tell you that just by sitting in front of the computer and writing it, has increased my understanding of, of the financial system exponentially because I just had a 15 hours of focused thinking. You have set up your, your role in order to focus on more, I mean, creative tasks such as thinking and writing. And we have all read uh, Warren Buffett who, who tries to keep a, an empty schedule, so to speak. And, and that's something you seem to do as well. I mean, do you agree or? Yeah. No, so, so the way I do this is slightly different I mean, you know, than Warren Buffett. Um, my calendar is blocked off until 1 or 2 p.m. my time. I get up at about 5, and 8, 5 a.m. and 5 to 7, 7.30 I write. It depends on the, my kids' schedule and stuff. Um, and then after that, until 1 or 2 o'clock, I just basically spend, spend my time on research. My job is not, you know, as an analyst, not just to write, but it's also to read, to talk to other money managers, to work with my analysts on financial models for the companies, to listen to conference calls, doing all these different things. Um, but then, you know, honestly, I think after working, like after doing the kind of intense research for five or six hours, I think my brain kind of on the hours seven is probably not as sharp. So that's the time I spend on other roles. And we were going to ask you about different life hacks and we will come to that later, but I think you answered it much better than than I hoped. I mean, we we, we were going to ask, I mean, how do you spend your time between writing, talking to others and and thinking? And uh, I think it's, I mean, the, the what I think lis- the listeners should really grasp from from this is is that actually it's it's up to them. I mean, it's we're all different, and uh, some some maybe work best just to to sit in a room thinking, and others need to talk to people and and so on. So you need to figure it out on your own. You need to be mindful about this. Yes, there is an essay that I think everybody should read. It's by Peter Drucker. It's called uh, "Managing Yourself." Uh, this incredible essay. My son is 21 years old. I asked him to read it. He read it and he said it had a huge impact on him. So one of the points Peter Drucker makes in this essay, we should learn how to, you know, like we should actually be very introspective about ourselves. How do we learn? Some people learn better from reading, some better from listening. Some people learn better from talking to others and debating things. Okay, it's very important to know this. And uh, also, I would expand on this, and I would say you need to figure out: Are you a morning person or evening person? Because um, 
like a lot of writers, like um, I'll give you an example. Like I think the um, Walter Isaacson is a is a night owl. He writes at at, at night. Uh, some other writers write early in the morning. So I am a, like my wife is a not a morning person. I am. So this is why I get up at five in the morning and I have this is where my creativity, my energy is at the highest. For my wife, she if she had to do something creative in the morning, the outcome would not be as nearly as good if she did something in, in the evening. So. Uh, a question I want to ask you about your firm that you bring up in, in Soul in the Game is that, I mean, most investment businesses strive to become large. That's how they earn, earn more income. And, uh, I mean, you bring up this tension about growing the asset base may lead you to worse performance. And, uh, I mean, you you are clear that you're not, I mean, aiming just to grow assets under, uh, asset, assets under management. And I'm just curious to know more about your reasoning on this. You know how we started the conversation um, about the economy of control? So the way I look at it, the things are up to us as a firm. If we do great research, if we treat our clients well, provide great service, if we are operationally efficient, if we have great people working in the firm and we have fun doing all these things together, those so everything described right now are process-based goals. If we do all those things well, we're gonna have great results. Like, you no, know, this the company will naturally grow. Now, uh, so the growth will be secondary. Um, now, what's important to understand for investment firm, as the firm grows, it changes. Okay, what made it great in the beginning. If if it's if it evolves well, and some firms do, then it's going to be absolutely fine. But you have to be aware that there is an evolution, there is a change. Okay, you're gonna have you're gonna have more levels of you could have more levels of bureaucracy. You could, like, as a suddenly like being a CEO could consume more uh, more of my time. All these things. So be extremely mindful of this. So therefore, in a We've been thinking about actually. We, we, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this because we've been growing. We've been growing consistently over the last seven years, seven eight years, and at some point, I'm concerned that we'll get to the size where it actually would be detrimental to us. So, to make sure to avoid this, we spend a lot of time thinking about our processes thinking about you know to become more efficient operationally the on the investment side we really don't buy like a lot of micro caps or etc so unless we get to 10 or 15 billion dollars so unless we get to very large size that's not an issue for us so we actually from a on the investment side we don't have many constraints for growth the biggest constraint for us you know since we are you know we manage separate accounts it's really, you know, we want to make sure we provide great service to clients. We'll make sure we don't make mistakes. We are operationally efficient. We want to make sure we don't have bureaucracy. So, and one thing we would do at some point, and I'm almost sure of this, we would just be start raising minimum account sizes to make sure we have, you know, uh, to, to kind of to put some breaks on the growth. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it it seems if I hear it correctly, I mean. Slow and steady growth are, is better than than quick growth. I I mean we have seen a few examples of 
of funds, for example, I mean, with good performance, and then uh, investors just flock in, and and uh, and then performance, uh, I mean, turns um, because of that. Oh, absolutely. No, we are actually very selective as our clients. So, um, for somebody to be a good client for us, they need to have three things. Um, they have to buy into our philosophy. They have to have a long-term time horizon. And then number three, which is kind of unique to us, when you are a client of IMA, uh, that comes with homework. And the homework is that, you know, I produce you know, I, three, four times a year, I write this 30, 35 page letters to clients that literally walk them through every decision in the portfolio, updates them on, you know, updates them on thinking on the, about the market, about the economy, about the stocks we own. And they have to read that. Because when you, there will be a time when I look like, you know, there's the times like, like I look like a, like, like a genius. There'll be a lot of times when I look like a moron. I'm probably neither. Um, and uh, for, uh, for a person to be a good client for us, they have to have all three. And um, last year I wrote an essay about how a client actually, we had we a, uh, a, uh, a person who kind of slipped through our filters and we actually ended up letting him go three months later. It was a mutual decision because he was when the person starts to question my performance three months into relationship. And when I say our performance, I think we were up three percent. The market was at eight over that time period, right? Something like that. And uh, and he thought I would be apologizing for underperformance uh, when he asked me about this. And I basically explained to him that, and there were some other comments he made where I realized he was just not the right client for us. So one more point about this. For an investment firm to be successful, you need to have a very good alignment between the strategy and the clients. The clients have to buy into the strategy. Otherwise, you're going to have a disconnect. And just a matter of time before the disconnect will result into problems. And I, w- I want to go into the strategy a bit more. I mean, you, you said in the beginning that you had written three books and the first two are about investing, where, where the first book is active value investing and the other is the little book of sideways markets, which you say is the better book out of the two. It's more, it's more condensed, so to speak. Or did I, did I get that right in, in interviews you have, you have been in? Yeah, I, I say this, so this is kind of interesting. Um, I could not write the little book of cyber markets without writing active value investing. And for many reasons. Number one, I would not have the, so the, in the little book, so the active value investing is a, I think it's 280 pages, 75 charts and tables. There's a lot of data in it. Okay. Little book of cyber markets has a, I think five charts and tables. And I think the, my publisher Wiley was upset with me because that was four too many. Um, for that series of books. Um, and uh, that, but I had the confidence to write that book because if anybody questioned me on any data, I would just tell them, just go read the other book. That's where the data is, right? Um, that's so what I found about that series of books in general, they are very good summaries of other books. I'll give you one example. Like one of my favorite books in the series, actually two books. Uh, James Montier's uh, Behavioral Investing, which is a terrific summary of the book by the same name. The little book of uh, Behavioral Investing is terrific. I read his other book, 
And it's great, but except it has so many examples and some of them are tedious. If I just want to get a very high level understanding of this, it does a great job. And uh, Pat Dorsey wrote another book on a competitive advantage, and I forget the name of it. But he wrote a first book, was a big book, and then the little book was a just much better summary. I just really liked his little book. So I, I got a chance to summarize things. And also as an author, what happens after you write things, you think more about this. You, uh, by writing the little book, I had an opportunity to just rewrite some things and make it better. And I actually haven't read the the active value investing. I, I actually read the little book first, and it it was quite early in my career, and it actually influenced me a, a lot. And I want to thank you for that. Um, and I I especially like the idea that you present about the need to think long term, but but also be flexible and and sometimes act short term. Can you expand on how you I mean what this idea really means? This is kind of interesting. So the I'm going to give you two conflicting thoughts. The argument for what we think of short term is that the that uh long term just consists of a lot of short terms okay and so with that argument a lot of analysts would basically look at next quarter earnings you know a company beats them or not whatever this kind of stuff and i, th- I have an issue with that because a lot of times to do well in long term you have to make short-term sacrifices uh like one of the best quotes in this is uh, Jeff Bezos was in a conference call one time ago, and somebody says, "Jeff, congratulations on the you know on this great quarter." And he says, "I don't think you understand. We planted the seeds for this quarter three years ago. All the decisions we made three years ago that actually you see today. So that's what ex- that that's what it takes. Those decisions are detrimental to short term but beneficial for long term. Okay, because to when you plant those seeds, they, they, they come with costs, right? And you don't see the result now. You see it three years from now. Um, now, the, but let me give you the conflicting, the other side of this. To see the long term, you need to survive the short term. And sometimes the short term could be so painful that it will impact the long term. And what I mean by this when uh, we are talking right now after Silicon Valley Bank just blew up. Like, like <laughs> if you are invested in Silicon Valley Bank, there is no long term anymore. Okay, so you have to make adjustments. You, when you look at things as an analyst, you have to understand, you have to look at the short term and look at it in the perspective, how does it impact the long term? So it's a conflicting framework and not conflicting at the same time. Because you again, you're looking at the short term from perspective of long term. Does it make long term better or worse? And a lot of times it makes it worse. And you know, I would argue if you look at the banking system today in the United States, that the what we're likely going to see that the earnings powers of banks, and I'm generalizing right now as a whole, uh, have been decreased substantially. Why? Because over the last 10 years, especially the last five years, the banking system was flushed with deposits, especially after $5 trillion helicopter donation by Uncle Sam to consumers. Now, so the banks took this money, and uh, this time around, they learned the lesson from 2008. They did not take credit risk. 
you know, because, you know, that's, you know, uh, and they had better balance sheets. But what they did instead, they took a different risk. They took a duration risk. What they did, they took these deposits and invested into long-term bonds, you know, in the long-term loans and long-term bonds. And so when you are borrowing at zero and you invest in for the next 30 years at 3%, it's great if the, if the interest rates stay where they are today. Now, the problem is as, as rates go up, several things happen, both on the asset side and liability side. First of all, the 30-year bond is now worth probably 30, 40% less. So the, your balance sheet just suffered from that. Uh, now, the, your funding costs go from zero to more. Uh, and what you find is that the, like when interest rates are zero, the depositors basically don't care like what they get paid. Like, so you have interest-bearing deposits and non-interest-bearing deposits, right? So non-interest-bearing uh, deposits, they don't care if they get two basis points because non-interest are paying as much. So you know, they don't care. Now, when rates go up, non-interest are paying zero and interest-bearing now have to pay a lot more. Um, and so what happens, so the, what's going to happen to a lot of banks, they have a, loans that are paying 3% on the, on the asset side and, the, and they're funded by deposit that are paying 4 So I, I like this is one of the cases where higher volumes are not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so anyway, the way you look at it, so what's what's happening in the, today with the banking system is that the profitability is suffering you know, and the book value is declining. Um, so that actually diminishes banks, reduces banks' profitability on both sides, from the asset side and f- from the balance sheet side and income saving side. Um, and the only difference is that how do you account for those 30-year loans? Are they held for sale or are they or are they held to, to maturity? That's the only difference. Uh, but the impact is the same. So my point is, so as an analyst, do I just, you know, kind of say I'm a long-term investor, therefore I'm going to ignore it? Or do I look at it and say, oh, the earnings power of my banking portfolio is a lot less now. Maybe I should, maybe those companies that I thought were undervalued no longer undervalued. Did I, did, did I answer your question? Yeah, definitely. And in connection to that, I want to ask you, I mean, having an active value strategy means that I mean, you need to have a process of when to sell a company. And, and what you bring up here is, with the banking example, is that uh, actually the earnings power of the businesses have decreased, which could be a, a fundamental reason for selling. But what are other good reasons for selling a company? Well, I mean, so so in this, like, like we're going to categorize it. Okay. So the reason I just gave you is when you have certain assumptions when you bought the company, and for reasons, for whatever reasons, those assumptions no longer true and so that's why you sold it okay let's talk about the second one would be the one that people love to celebrate you bought a company you figured out it's worth a hundred dollars you bought it 50 got to hundred dollars now it's full of value you sell it so that's the second reason and this and the, and, the, and then the, the third one which kind of actually in between this first and second actually it's a where are there, so maybe the company that I described that you think is worth 100, and now it's at 90. So it's not full, quite fully valued. But now you see an opportunity where you can buy another company that's substantially cheaper. 
and you don't have any cash. So you sell one company to buy another. So kind of, uh, so those are kind of three reasons to sell. Um, and the the reasons to sell the first one, like very like the, the very first example we described, there's so many like they, they come in so many different flavors. You thought the company was run by good management, it's no longer true, or maybe you were wrong. You you see risks that you did not see before. You think it has changed. Like you'd say, there are many reasons for that, and you you know and uh, yeah. I'm thinking about. Um... I mean, the opposite of that is is actually, uh, I mean, having a strict buy and hold uh, portfolio. And I mean, something we have seen in the uh, in the pandemic aftermath is this never sell hashtag. And I mean, you also write about religion stocks, and uh, I can just feel, I mean, how what, what your view may be on 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 those type of things. But I mean, I I think at the core, you argue that investors need to make a distinction between a great company and a great stock. And do you have any example on this that you want to to share? When it comes to investing, when a stock becomes a religion, it's a first level thinking. Uh, meaning, basically, like uh, you use Apple products and you say, "My God, I love this company's products," or you watch Disney movies and you say, "I love those movies," uh, or you own a company that you own for generations and it made you a lot of money. And it's kind of becomes it's responsible for a lot of the wealth you know, of your family. Like ExxonMobil was the stock like this for forever. It's like it's the stock that made people money forever until it didn't. Um, and it becomes kind of a religion stock where you basically say, no matter what, I'm never going to sell. The problem is, it's, again, it's a first level thinking. What, it, what it's not focusing on is that you're talking about, well, first of all, you're talking about a company. Okay. Not, but there is a huge difference between the company and the stock. Um, because I, I, the, the simplest example is this. Like I just I'll give you the most ridiculous example. So just to, just to make a point. Let's say you own a McDonald's franchise in a small town. Okay. That makes a million dollars a year. Okay. I mean, that is a great business. And you have a local monopoly and you can't own another McDonald's franchise. It makes a million dollars a year. So do you think that if somebody offered you $3 million, you should sell it? You say, no, no, that's too little. You say $50 million, you know, $20 million. You say, yeah, no, that's, you know, it's more, but it's too little. What if somebody offers you a billion dollars? At some point, and let's say, actually, let me, let me put it this way. Let's sell it for sale at a billion dollars. The franchise is selling, you know, that has a million dollars of cash flows. Okay. It's, it's going to be a great business, incredibly overvalued, right? So, and but you know, and I know this sounds ridiculous, but we see this in the stock market all the time. We see these terrific companies, uh, the Shopify's of the world, like you know, whatever, trading at this. Like, there may be incredible businesses that were revolutionized their space, trading at insane valuations. You know, and I, you know, and I. And uh, what happens usually, kind of at the pinnacle of the bubble, they become kind of one decision stocks. You only buy them. And uh, I've seen this now three times in my career. I've seen it in 2008. I mean, I'm sorry, in 1999, to some degree in 2008, and to some degree, in a large degree, uh, you know, last couple, last three or four years. It's just they become one decision stocks. And uh, I'll give you another example, which is. Uh, 
what's great about those companies when once the religion is broken they get dumped and people hate them uh and this is when people like me start buying them so the uh i'll give you one example qualcomm was this religion stock in 1999 if you look at the chart of the stock it just went up 20x and for some of it some of it was the right thing you know was the, you know some of it was justified it was it was on basically uh, a standard for mobile communication. So it, it was a tax on every single mobile phone sold globally. So every time you buy a phone, Qualcomm gets 4% of, this, you know, the, of the wholesale price. Beautiful business, except the, the stock was so expensive that for the next 15 years, it's gone nowhere. And at first, first, it probably declined 50%. And then it just was, you know, it took, I think it took you 15 years to break even. By the way, I just summed up, by the way, this Qualcomm example, I just summed up my little book of sideways markets. You know, this, it's just, just really, you know, so, and then we in 20, I think we bought it in 2015, 2016, Qualcomm, uh, and uh, owned it since. So, uh, you know, so today we have this, you know, wreckage going on in tech stocks, and as the religion get destroyed, you know, with, every, you know, Day by day, with the stock price decline, we do keep doing more and more homework because at some point, people will just abandon them and say, "I don't want to own the stock ever again," you know. And then this is like vultures like me, or <laughs> you guys maybe, uh, and start looking at those companies. I think we saw that with uh, Meta in in the end of 2022, for example. And uh, I want to ask you one more question about, which is, uh, I mean, for for all the big fans of the little book of sideways markets, I mean, you you really describe how markets work in that book. And uh, I would like to know a bit more on the current situation. I mean, your view here. And I mean, you present that we have these secular bear, bull or sideways markets when when the market goes nowhere for long periods. And within these, we have cyclical bear or bull markets. And I mean, in the book, you showed how we began a sideways markets in the 2000s. And, and when you finished the book in, I think it was 2010, 2010 yeah, uh, we, we were still in that same secular market. What has happened since? Yeah, so the I think it's a very good framework. It's not completely bulletproof. And the reason it's not bulletproof, because I would argue actually from, like, if I'm completely honest, then I was wrong from expecting sideways markets to continue. So here's what happens. At the end of the bull markets, valuations are very high. And it usually takes quite a while for the valuations to decline from above average to average to below average. This time, you know, this that's what has happened historically. Except this time, when interest rates, you know, when, when the valuations were declining, they were never really got to average or below average. They just kind of Maybe they got to average, you could argue. But then they just bounced and went straight up. Why? Because we had interest rates that went basically to you know, to zero or below zero uh, in, 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 in Europe. Uh, and uh, that has basically just, we threw a huge amount of uh, uh, oil and, and and dry wood under valuations and just and, uh, and lit up matches. And that's, you know, that's, that's why fees went up again. So I don't think my, the framework is broken. I think just that time, the history never repeated rhymes, right? And this time, that was a, you know, kind of, you know, that, I did not account for that factor. 
which which I don't think anybody could see at the, you know, at the time when I, when I was when I was writing the book. But from today's perspective, uh, actually, I would argue that the setup today, if you count for interest rates, is actually uh, very favorable because interest rates are now rising. Again, if they continue to rise, stay at this level, then that actually works in you know in your favor in the favor of that argument. If they decline and go to zero, I have no idea what's going to happen. So I'm just you know I'm going to qualify my answer this time because I, I learned. Uh, <laughs> but um, but so valuations are high, uh, interest rates are much higher. We also have a lot more debt in the global economy, um, which is stimulative actually to economic growth. So going forward, we either going to have sideways markets or if you're lucky or if you're unlucky we may actually get a uh, uh, bear markets and uh, the difference between bear markets and sideways markets in this example would be you have high valuations during sideways markets you have economic growth during the bear markets i'm talking about 10 15 years you have a uh, either no economic growth or decline in the economy and uh like the last kind of you know bear market we saw was in Japan. And uh, people would say, well, United States is not Japan. But the argument would have been in the, in the early 90s when you looked at Japan, it wasn't, you know, it, it was not Japan in quotes, right? So, uh, you know, just because, you know, we, you know, United States in the past was a very strong economy, it doesn't mean that in the future it's going to be a strong economy. And there is a, it's actually kind of interesting. There is a, you can argue that one leads to the opposite of another. What I mean by this is that there is a negative feedback loop. When you when you are a strong economy for a long time, you become arrogant. You start thinking that you become entitled and start behaving as if, uh, you know, the success is given to you by God, but not, not by hard work. And I would argue that United States has kind of, you know, I've lived in the United States for 30 years. That's what, that's, that's the biggest change I observe is that we kind of become more, like a lot more entitled. And uh, so I could see, you know, I could see that the next 30 years may not be as bright. I mean, it's still going to be fine, but it's not going to be as bright as the previous 30 years from their perspective. So something we touched upon earlier, and as you mentioned in Soul in the Game, is how small tweaks can really make a big difference in our lives. And for example, when it comes to decision making, which is vital for us as investors. So I'm curious if you can give an example from your life. So let me tell you this. Uh, it's like, like last, as I told you, like last, you know, last week, I've been thinking a lot about financial system. And uh, I had this insight that um, there's there's this law, like the first law of thermodynamics is that the energy never dissipates, it just gets transferred. Okay. And I would argue it applies to finance as well. And uh, if you think about what's happening right now in the banking system in the United States, um, you could have looked at the banking system in the U.S. and said, well, 
the interest rates went up, but I know 70, 80% of mortgages are 15 to 30 years, right? So in, interest rates going up does, does not have an impact as much in the mortgage market and the, the housing market. Okay, and that would be true. You can think we can talk about how it's gonna impact the new sales, etc. But the key point I want to stress is that the the core argument is that if you own a house and you have a long-term mortgage, it has no impact on you. You know, high interest rates have no impact on you. However, that benefit is at, at the expense of somebody else. That energy gets transferred from consumers to the banks or to insurance companies or pension funds that are holding those loans. And um, now, the if you think about Europe, and Europe is different, uh, the mortgage structure is different, and I'm kind of generalizing right now again, is that you don't have it, you know, the, your loans, and you guys can tell me this, but usually three to five years loan, uh, the even, even a fixed rate loan, it usually resets every three to five years, right? Is that, is that about right? I mean, in, in Sweden, in Sweden, the majority is floating rates. So it's, uh, I mean, three okay. months. Yeah, exactly. So if you look at the banks, at Swedish banks, generalizing right now, I'm not going to mention names. Um, they should be doing better than American banks from their perspective, you know, because, okay, however, the prices are higher. And where does it energy, so the energy from the uh, Swedish banks is transferred to whom? To the consumer, right? It's kind of the opposite of the U.S. issue. So now, as interest rates go up and you find that your mortgage went up 3 or 4x, your discretion income collapses. Your economy suddenly, you know, your economy suddenly is a lot more stressed, which means even if you were a Swedish bank in a good standing, you were not prepared for the economy of that, you know, shrinking, you know, impact, being impacted you know, by this magnitude. So, that's how, like, I'm just giving you a framework of thinking. And that has changed, you know, this kind of, the first law of thermodynamics kind of has changed the way I look at the financial system and and the responsible for changes we made in the portfolio last week. And if we speak about life hacks, another way that you, you write about in the book is meditation. And you, you write that this has helped you to live in the present, but... At the same time, we as investors, we are always trying to predict the future. So we're curious, how, how do you reconcile this being an investor and also living in the now? You know, it's kind of funny. You're the second person to ask me this. Like, like uh, and your question implies as an investor, you live in the future. The future or the past. Yeah. The problem is, like, for some reason, like, you're the second person to ask me this. And I, and I always get stumped with this question because that's not how I look at investing. You're just trying, like, um, okay, because that assumes that I'm, I just can't wait for the future to arrive, right? Like, it's a, that's that's there's an assumption in this. Um, I kind of, as an investor, you look into the future, you try to make predictions, and then, like, not predictions, make some, oh, I guess, predictions, some assumptions, etc. And then, that's it. It's like I'm not waiting for the future to arrive. I'm not, you know, I'm just, time marches on and I, the thing is, okay, maybe, maybe, okay, I, I can see this. If I only owned one stock, okay, let's go back to the utility analyst guy. He only owns one stock and then he, every quarter he has to look and see if his assumptions were right and this is the only thing he's looking at and nothing else. 
thing is, I like the because I keep looking like we have existing portfolio. I keep learning and thinking, you know, about new stocks. You know, so the time goes on, and I'm not really just I'm not trying to time to hurry up and come. Uh, so I maybe for from an outsider, like, and I, I know you're not an outsider, but somebody who asked me that was an outsider, and I stopped me for about a second, and I realized I, I'm not really. I'm still being as an investor. I'm still being in the present. It's just I analyze the future. Actually, you know what? If you think about it, it's actually it's true to any profession. Let's say you're a doctor, and you you know you say you uh, treat uh, uh, cancer patients, right? So a cancer patient comes to you. You analyze the you know the the uh, the cancer and see how it would spread, etc. You know. But it's not like you want the future to come, right? You just you are you are trying to make the best decision you can you know, with information you have. So uh, I hope it, that answers the questions and it doesn't confuse you more. But yeah, yeah, it's very philosophical. I I just see myself as an investor. I'm you're always looking at historical data. You're going back what happened during those years and. Uh, then you also, of course, look at the future and you, what can you expect and so forth. So you spend a lot of time thinking about it, or I mean, from my own perspective, I'm spending some time thinking about how the future is going to unfold and predicting that, and then also looking at the financials and other things in the in the history. So in that way, but you can, of course, I mean, you're living in the now, so you're doing that with a present mind, maybe, but and then disconnecting it. No, then connecting everything to the now. No, I, I, I think that's what exactly what you do. You just when you do analysis, you look at the past, you look at the future, and you make and you make a decision and move on. But in some other professions, I guess you you just solve the problem, and then you're very focused on just solving that one. If you are a plumber, you're just like focusing on <laughs> solving that specific problem. You don't think too much about like. But maybe you do the same. No, no, you're right. I think that's that, that that's a that's a great point, right? It's a the. You are not as a plumber. Your analysis is going to be a lot, you know, focused on, you know, on on that on on that on that uh, on on this issue today. In other professions, you know, you have, you know, like as, like as, a, as an example, I gave as a doctor, you know, treating cancer patients. You have to think about the future, but again, you're just trying to make the best analysis of the, you know, and then just move on. And then, by the way, and as time progresses, you make correction, you know, corrective action, etc. So as uh, this is a book podcast, we like to wrap up with some questions about reading and writing, which we know that you like to do. Um, and you man- mentioned a few titles already, but is there any book that has shaped you in, in the early innings of your investing career? Well, I think any book by Nassim Taleb. I mean, I, that's kind of, that's a, that's a layup. Yeah. When it comes to stoicism, two books come to mind. One is... Uh, how to Think Like a Roman Emperor by Donald Robertson. And another one is A Guide to Good Life by William Irvin. Those two books had a huge impact on me. Um, uh, uh, you know, and my thinking about Stoic philosophy, etc. So uh, those would be the books that come to mind. And uh, you write that the, this was the first volume of Soul in the Game. Uh, so what are your thoughts going forward? So this is such a great layup question for me. So here's what happens. So they, when the book came out, I just kept writing. And if you bought Soul in the Game, go to soulinthegame.net. And uh, there are instructions there how you can get absolutely free. I think I already wrote six new chapters. 
and I keep writing. So uh, um, I just keep thinking and writing. So I'd say at some point I may accumulate enough that we'll publish the second volume. But you can get the new chapters already at just on solinagame.net. Looking forward to read everything that you're writing. And is there any other book project not related to Soul in the Game that you have in mind? As you guys know, I write all the time. And you can, if you go to investor.fm, actually, you can just subscribe to my articles and read my articles, you know, all the time. Done that. Great. Vitalik Katsanason, thank you so much for taking uh, the time and also for a very interesting conversation about you and, and uh, two of your books, actually. Uh, we uh, totally recommend everyone to, to buy these and uh, review them. Uh, do you have something more you want to add before we finish up here? No, I just really want to thank you guys. I think it was a terrific conversation. Thank you so much for this. Thank you a lot, Vitali. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Red Eye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.